this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you can get free bonus episodes and audiobooks. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. Welcome to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to feature the first chapter of the Cruise of the Amaryllis by Captain... G.H.P. Muehlhauser, Lieutenant, Royal Navy Reserve. So this is a classic uh, that Ox River Publishing is producing, uh, and we're going to give it to you free as an audio book in this podcast. We're producing the annotated edition of this classic. Uh, I am through the first chapter so it's a long one we might break it up into two we'll see how much time it takes uh, but the key thing about um, Captain uh, Muehlhauser is that he is the first yachtsman to sail around the world through the Panama Canal and through the Suez Canal right so he does the Red Sea route and the Panama Canal route uh, and you know he bought a yacht the amaryllis uh right after the end of world war one similar to uh mabel stock and her brother uh that after the world war one they sailed through the panama canal and muehlhauser did not intend to keep on going around but he ended up doing so when he couldn't get a good price for the boat and unfortunately muehlhauser died like right after they finished the trip in england and, uh, you know, I think his book would have been better had he lived uh, enough to edit it more. Uh, but it, we're going to we're producing an edited and annotated edition uh, that that I think uh, will be more acceptable to to readers. But it's a it's it's not really a bridge to just uh, uh, edited. All right. So let me give you the reading now and uh, I'll talk to you on the backside. You are listening to The Cruise of the Amaryllis, annotated, copyright 2020, initial copyright 1924, G.P.H. Muehlhauser, edited by Linus Wilson, Ox River Publishing, a division of Vermilion Advisory Services, all rights reserved, production copyright 2020. Chapter 1, Outward Bound. On a beautiful still day in early September 1920, the deputy assistant harbor master, resplendent in blue uniform with much gold lace on it, stood on the dock's head at Plymouth and watched a small yawl-rigged yacht leaving the dock under power. The weather conditions were favorable. There was no wind and an absolutely smooth sea. The yawl was proceeding at four miles per hour, which was the maximum speed under power, that the 12-15 horsepower motor could drive her with all things in its favor. What ship is that? the deputy assistant harbor master asked. The Amaryllis. Where are you bound? Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, goodbye. As an afterthought, he shouted, good luck. Such was our send-off. 
At first sight, it may seem a remarkable feat to take a small vessel of 28 tons gross or 36 tons Thames measurement round the world via New Zealand. A relatively short time ago, it would have been so regarded. Today, it is recognized that quite small, well-founded vessels are safe even in bad weather. Editor's note, the Amaryllis was definitely underpowered by the standards of a modern sailboat of its size. That it had an auxiliary engine made it somewhat extraordinary nevertheless. End of editor's note. They are not uncomfortable under such conditions. Indeed, they are accurately, almost intolerably uncomfortable, but most of them are safe if properly handled. It does not do to play tricks because the sea is without mercy. Punishment for a mistake or error in judgment is meted out in full on the spot and never with forgiveness. Although there is, in a matter of fact, nothing remarkable about such a voyage, it is unusual because it is not often that the wish and ability are combined in the same person. There are many who have wanted to, but have not the time nor the knowledge to do it. As a result, little ships do not often make really long trips. As far as I can learn, the Amaryllis is the third smallest to go around the world, and the smallest that has ever sailed round England, the other two having sailed from America. Editor's note. The author is likely referring to Joshua Slocum and J.C. Voss. Nevertheless, both men were Canadians, and only the former sailed from a U.S. home port. Captain Voss never sailed around the whole world in a yacht. Instead, he stopped sailing from Victoria, B.C. to England before selling his voyaging canoe Tillicum. American may be a reference to the resident of the Western Hemisphere in this case. Captain Voss did die in America. Both Slocum and Voss were naturalized U.S. residents at some point in their wandering lives. Editor's note. However, the deputy assistant harbor master standing on the dockhead was in no way impressed. On the other hand, the insurance people insisted on a prohibitive premium when hearing our plans. Thus, the Amaryllis sailed uninsured. The call of the sea is a peculiar thing. It is a puzzle why anyone would submit to the confinement, want of society, privations, broken nights, and general unrest and discomfort. In addition, one must suffer in a small yacht with its elementary cooking and anxieties. Indeed, I do not understand it myself. At any rate, it is a clean sport and harms no one and nothing. A sailor must contend with the mighty natural forces and must depend on one's own efforts to get safely through. This gives zest to life and sheds a glow of romance over the undertaking. It was not until immediately after the armistice that the thought of making a long cruise suddenly occurred to me. I was then waiting to be appointed to command of a minesweeper. During the first 26 months of the war, I had been in the minesweeping service. In the next 18 months, I was in Q-ships, and then I wound up in hydrophone trawlers. One day, when I was at the Admiralty, I was looking idly through a number of sailing directions for all parts of the world. As I read of this harbor and that, and the history of the discovery of the islands and the continents, the idea took shape in my mind. It speedily grew to a decision to push out and have a look round soon as I should be demobilized. This latter event took place in 1919, with mingled feelings of of relief and regret, I left the Admiralty a free man and my own master. I at once began looking round to see what could be had in way of suitable craft. 
Someone told me that a well-known yachtsman was preparing for a trip to the West Indies, and I got in touch with him. I found him in a boat shed on the dark, brooding over the Amaryllis, which he had just bought. She had been hauled out of the water. She had all the inside fittings removed, leaving the kelson, timbers, and floors exposed. Everything was in first-rate condition, and I was astounded to learn that she had been built in 1882. There was not a sign of age or wear about her. She had been honestly built of seasoned timber, and her condition nearly 40 years later was a credit to her builders. Mr. A. E. Payne, who were later Summers and Payne, and to those who had looked after her. It will not be necessary to give exact details of her construction. A brief description will suffice. She is osh-decked. That is, she has skylights and hatches, but no cabin top. She is 36 tons, or Thames, 28 gross tons, and 7 tons net measurement. She is 62 feet overall, with 52 feet on the waterline, 13 feet beam, and draws 10 feet of water. Most of the ballast is iron carried inside, but there are 34 tons of lead on the keel. In view of the work before her, this arrangement of the ballast was sound, since it is not advisable that a ship which has to knock about in the seas in all weathers should carry all ballast in lead on the keel. Such an arrangement would make her too quick in motion, and would put an undue strain on the masts and gear. In the forecastle are cots for three men and a coal stove. Then comes the pantry and laboratory, separated by an alleyway leading into the salon, which is 9.25 feet long, with 7 feet floor space between the settees and 6 feet 1 inch headroom under the beams. Aft of this is a cabin on the starboard side. The companion ladder to the deck is in the middle. The small engine is in the port side. Aft of this is my cabin containing two bunks. The sail locker is right aft and is entered through the hatch on deck. She struck me as a sound, well-built, and powerful little ship, snugly rigged, and fit to go anywhere. Nevertheless, she is not my ideal cruiser. She has a counter ten feet long, is yawl-rigged, and steered with a tiller. My preference is for a very short counter or canoe stern, catch rig, and a wheel steering. Moreover, her draft of 10 feet was rather too much for knocking amongst coral reefs. It was a very good feature from the point of view of keeping the sea. However, there she was, and matters between the owner and myself were soon arranged. It was agreed that he should have the ship coppered, install an engine, and that we should then cruise together to the West Indies. Fitting out, however, proved to be a long affair. Everybody seemed to be on strike. He could not at first get any copper or castings, and even an engine was unobtainable. The makers of this could not give a promise for delivery. They did not know what it would cost when delivered, and he was finally obliged to put in an American two-cylinder 1215 paraffin engine, which was very carefully installed. It proved as satisfactory as marine motors usually are. It started easily, and once running required very little attention, which was lucky, as I am not a mechanic. Nevertheless, it failed me once when I had desperate need of its services. It is, however, hardly fair to lay blame on an engine for nearly wrecking the ship on that occasion. The engine was prepared to do its part, but the fuel supply went wrong. Owing to strikes and the difficulty of getting material, 
Nearly a year elapsed before she was ready for sea. Then the owner found his home affairs prevented him from making the trip at all. As I had waited the best part of a year for him, this was distinctly upsetting to say the least of it. Matters were not improved when I could not find any other suitable ship ready. Ships there were, but fitting them out might have taken another year. In the end, I bought the Amaryllis at a price which now seems excessive, and found myself in the proud but rather embarrassing position of being the owner of a ship without a crew. Still, it was something to have a good little ship, even if she was 40 years old. I derived much pleasure from planning voyages all over the world. The West Indies attracted me, and then, of course, there was South America, the South Sea Islands, and Australasia, to say nothing of the Mediterranean, India, and the East, or even South Africa. In my imagination, I visited them all, but in the end, came back to the practical things of life. I decided to make a fair wind of it. I decided to sail for the West Indies before the Northeast trade winds through the Panama Canal. Then I would sail across the South Seas before the Southeast trades to Australasia. At the back of my mind was the idea that I should be able to sell the little ship at a nice profit, return, get another one, and repeat the process. In fact, I thought that I had discovered a new industry in which I could pleasantly and profitably spend my declining years. Things did not quite work out according to plan, but of that more anon. The first thing to do while waiting for crew to materialize was to get out a list of charts required. As I waded through the Admiralty Index of Charts, I selected the ones required, which by the way numbered about 240 at the start and nearly 500 by the time I got home. I could not help wondering what I should have done if I had lived 300 years ago and the desire to wander had assailed me. There were then no charts, no accurately made chronometers, no sextants even, and no nautical almanacs with information about the sun, moon, and stars given in decimals in a minute. There were no sailing directions, which not only give instructions as to how to get to harbors and the dangers to look out for, but also contain the history and much interesting information about every place. There were no wind and current charts. Practically all the undaunted sea dogs of that period had to speed them on their way were a few crude instruments an indifferent supply of salted provisions, beer, water, and their own stout hearts. I spent a month in getting stores and going over all the gear to see that it was in good condition. I saw that everything that was likely to be wanted was there, and at the same time I tried to get crew together. It became apparent at once that the latter would be a difficult thing to arrange. None of my friends could join. They were mostly struggling more or less successfully with their various businesses. In addition, the wives of my friends who were married viewed the suggestion that their husband should go sailing for a year or two with an undisguised contempt and dislike. It became clear to me that these feelings were extended to include me, the originator of the suggestion. I was considered a dangerous person for their husbands to know. My friends all proved non-starters. Thus, I advertised in various papers and journals and received a meager crop of replies. Some of my correspondents wanted to get something out of me. Others had no qualifications beyond a vague desire to be somewhere else. But David, an Irishman, then in Italy, agreed to join. He turned out to be a very agreeable, cheerful companion while he was on board. 
As no one else turned up, I brought the number on board up to three. This was the minimum, in my opinion, for a ship of this size. I signed on a young fisherman for the voyage to New Zealand. At first, he was very hardworking and diligent, but he soon became slack and inclined to overstay his shore leave. I pointed out that I was treating him well. He should treat me well and he agreed that his conduct was wrong. Unfortunately, it failed to improve, and I decided to pay him off. This, however, proved to be impossible. He had signed on for New Zealand, and to New Zealand he had to go, so the customs officer told me when I brought the matter before him. As I could not discharge the man, I later bribed him to sign off by giving him a month's wages. Later I found out that his lady love was at the bottom of the trouble. Whether he was a party to the conspiracy or whether both he and I were innocent victims of a woman's wiles, I could not discover. It transpired that the lady did not approve of his signing on for a two-year trip, and she persuaded him to overstay his leave regularly in the hopes that I should pay him off in disgust. Things certainly worked out according to plan, but I am glad that he is the one who is to marry her and not I. She is a trifle too artful for my taste. I will call my companions by their first name. At this point, Charles, who was an ex-lieutenant Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, turned up. He agreed not only to go himself as far as the West Indies, but also to bring his brother. Charles was a first-class seaman, and it was a piece of luck to come across him. His brother John was unused to the sea, but he was a great cook. He made himself extremely useful. He fitted out, provisioned, and made our boat ready for sea in every detail. Unfortunately, David was proving very elusive and difficult to get hold of. Since the day when he agreed to join, I had seen him twice. It was understood that he was putting his affairs in order for a prolonged absence. Apparently, it was a complicated and lengthy process as he put off the date of joining seven times. At last, in desperation, I wired that I was sailing on the next Monday. If he wished to take part in the trip, he must be on board then. He telegraphed that he would join on Saturday. I met his train and took him on board with some anxiety. How were things going to work out? We had never seen either Charles or John before, and I had no way of knowing how these temperaments would blend. It was a great experiment and might be a success or utter failure from the start. Men who are to be penned up in a small ship for months, living together in close contact, should be good mates. I felt sure that I could get along very well with David and the other two. Nevertheless, how would they get on with him? And how would he get on with them? As it happened, things worked out extremely well, and we were quite a happy family. Nevertheless, it was a great risk to run. There had not been any choice. I had to take a scratch crew or not start at all. Luckily, fortune favored me. I would not want a better lot of shipmates. We spent the Sunday in settling in. We left Plymouth on Monday, the 6th of September, the tercentury of the sailing of the Mayflower. In honor of this event, the town was gay with bunting and pageants but only the deputy assistant harbor master in solitary glory on the dockhead marked our departure. 
he only did it in the course of his duty on clearing the harbor a course was set to pass well outside ushant the plan was to make for vigo madeira and las palmas in gran canaria leaving there in the middle of october so as to arrive in the west indies after the hurricane season having got safely out of the harbor the next thing to do was arrange the watches. I knew that Charles was a good seaman, and John was a capable man. He was quite ignorant of boats, but how much experience David had, I did not know. In the ordinary way in a small ship, one man on deck at night to steer and lookout may be sufficient. In the circumstances, we decided on two watches, four hours on and four hours off duty. Charles and David were in one watch, and John and I were in the other. David rather upset me at the start by remarking that he hated all work. He said he especially hated routine work that he proposed to be a passenger to Madeira. This struck me as the most ominous remark, hinting at all kinds of dark possibilities. I consulted Charles, who always had the stub of an extinct cigarette between his lips. He brooded for a time in silence and then said, Is he an Irishman? Yes. Oh, that is all right then. It is only a way of speaking. You will probably find him first rate. And he was correct. David was a cheerful optimist and always willing and ready to do anything. He casually remarked on the first day, Of course it is madness to take a small ship like this across the Atlantic in the autumn. What makes you think that? Oh, he replied, A friend of mine, a retired sea captain, told me that it was sheer folly and that the ship will probably founder. The fact that I was, according to his information, about to place a ship in a position of great danger did not upset him in the least. He merely referred to the matter in the course of conversation. In vain I quoted him the sailing directions, stating that fair winds and fine weather might be expected. He remained unconvinced, but quite undisturbed. After the watches were fixed, the next thing to decide was the question of who was to be the cook. The cook is the most important man on board a ship. John saved us all discussions by volunteering for the job, and very well he did it too. He had not had much previous experience, but soon became an expert. Our appreciation of his early efforts encouraged him to attempt loftier flights. He used to study the cookbook for a time, and he would then disappear into the forecastle. We would soon hear the sound of Primus stoves going at full blast and other sounds of activity. At intervals during the operations, he would appear and feverishly consult the book and then plunge once more into the forecastle. The final result was satisfactory, apparently as much to his own surprise as ours, and meat puddings, jam puddings, bread graced the table, hashes, risoles, curries and stews, scones, cakes, pancakes, and other delights emerged from his labors. The only other special work was navigation, and this fell on occasions when it was required to my lot. David ran the engine on infrequent intervals. At sea, it was very seldom running. When entering or leaving a harbor, it was usually put into service. The mate had no particular job, but he worked hard about the ship and was always on hand when required 
retired. Things settled down on board into sea routine. By the time the Spanish coast was sighted, everything was working like oiled machinery. The passage took five days off of Ushant. We were becalmed and rolled heavily in an awkward swell, but from the time we got going again. We had fair winds and fine weather right across the Bay of Biscay. On the fifth afternoon, the coast should have been in sight. Indeed, it should have not been more than five miles off, but a bank of mist lay in that direction. Thus, nothing showed up. A schooner and steamer were in sight, but no land. I decided to steer in and hold the helmsman, who was at the tiller, or the blooming stick, as we called it, to pass under the stern of the steamer, which was close and steaming on a parallel course. The wind was well aft and fresh. We were moving through the water faster than the latter, a slow old tramp. I then went below to look at the chart. On my return a few minutes later, I found that instead of passing under her stern, the helmsman had, without reflection, decided that it would be more amusing to cross her bow. The natural result of this was that we lost the wind when under her lee and could then neither cross her stern nor her bow. We could not even jibe, as we found it impossible to get the main sheet in without coming up to the wind to ease the pressure, and there was not room to do that. It was an undignified position to be in. There was nothing for it but to appeal to the steamer people to give us more room. I waved my arm towards the east to show that I wanted to go that way. They very kindly slowed the engines until we had clearance and could cross their bows. They must have thought us a lubberly lot to put ourselves in such a position. Shortly afterwards, land loomed indistinctly through the mist, and we identified it as Cape Turinana, the point we had been aiming at. On that night, the wind fell right away to start calm, and we drifted about without steering way, heading now in one direction and now in the other. The dawn came in thick with rain, which obscured the land. We started the engine to get close to the coast and try to fix the ship's position and find out where we had drifted to during the calm night. Island soon appeared on the starboard hand, which might either be the Islas Ones or the Islas Seas, but which they were I could not determine. As there were no outlying dangers, we stood on, but it was not until the islands were abeam that I could be sure that they were the Islas Ones, five miles north of the Islas Seas, which guard the entrance to Vigo Bay. As the wind still continued very light and the rain was very wet, we stood in to the little village of Sanjinjo in Pontevedra Bay and anchored. This part of the Spanish coast is cut up into deep bays and fjords, and it is very lovely. There were mountains of good height with villas and houses red-roofed and painted white scattered about their bases that looked down on inlets and in the clear atmosphere make a pleasant picture. As it happened, the atmosphere was far from clear on the following day. Indeed, there was a thick fog and a flat calm. Not being pressed for time, we remained where we were and entertained various visitors who came off. The first to arrive was the captain of the port, rather perturbed by our arrival. I fancy he thought we were smugglers at first, but the large red seal, two inch in diameter, on the club's certificate filled him with subdued rapture. 
he eventually thought that people with documents bearing such splendid seals must be respectable. Then came two garter civils. One of them arrived with a rifle. After them, a number of schoolboys turned up. Then several parties of residents arrived. And last but not least, a fisherman who simply could not be kept off the ship boarded. He wandered around examining all our gear with a critical professional eye. We interpreted the smile which never left his face to mean approval of what he saw. The next day was still calm. We ran the few miles to Vigo under power. Vigo has some fine buildings, but it is not otherwise a very attractive town. At least once one is ashore, it looks well enough for the water. We stayed there only three days. Drake paid the town a visit in 1584. On his appearance, the inhabitants made a beeline for the nearest hill. The only exception was the governor, who, after seeing Drake, rode off for a conference, which was held in the middle of the harbor with the presence of wine and fruit. On the 17th of September, we weighed and left for Fuchal Madeira, sailing HMS Timorere on the way out. There was very little wind until morning. Then it came fresh from the southeast with driving rain. At 10 p.m. we had to reef the mainsail. We soon put in two reefs. Soon afterward, the wind was strong and heavy. We hove to on a port tack, heading away from the land. Strictly speaking, we should have been hove to on the starboard tack, as usual, in that part of the world, for the winds which start from the southeast with thick rainy weather tend to veer to the northwest. To avoid being taken aback, one should be on the starboard tack. I did not know how long the wind would last. Thus, I did not want to be edging in on the land. That is why I hove to on the port. This was the first time I tried the little ship in heavy weather. I was delighted with the way she behaved. She rode quite easily with the decks dry, but for spray. Nevertheless, all small vessels are uncomfortable in bad weather, regardless of how good they may be as sea boats. The howling of the wind, the pounding of the sea, and the constant violent motion of the ship itself all make for unrest and discomfort. Luckily, this wind only lasted for one day, and we were then able to proceed. Two days later, we were struck by a heavy squall. The afternoon had been calm with no wind at all. Just afternoon, heavy black clouds began forming in the north. As they did, they did not seem to get any nearer as the barometer was steady. We did not pay a great deal of attention to them, ignoring their wicked appearance. A dark line showed on the water, and almost immediately, the hissing sound of approaching wind could be heard. In a few seconds, it was on us. As the ship had been motionless without way, the first impact of the wind laid her down. There was green water up the skylights, and one of the aft gratings was washed away. She picked herself up at once. She had no more than bowed in acknowledgment of the might of the wind. Then she went off like a racehorse. It was urgent to get sail off. After a severe struggle, the topsail was dragged down in ribbons. As soon as the halyard was started, it thrashed itself to pieces. The mizzen and staysail were then lowered, and the ship was hove to until the squall had screamed itself away. Wet to the skin because cold rain came with the wind, and chilled we went below. There we changed and had a cup of bovril, which was a very cheering drink in the circumstances. One member of the crew, however, who shall be nameless, was not wet. In defiance or perhaps ignorance of the rules of the sea, which always puts the safety of the ship or her gear before any question of personal comfort, he had gone below when the trouble started. He had 
calmly donned his oilskin sea boots and southwester, and then reappeared properly dressed for the part when the work was done. He claimed that, owing to the noise of the wind and the rain and the general uproar that was going on, he had not heard my pointed remarks as he disappeared below. The squall was the last of what could be described as bad weather until we were on the other side of Tahiti, about 8,500 miles away. A period of delightful sailing was about to start when the wind was nearly always fair and the weather nearly always fine, except for rain. After the squall, a fresh fair wind took us three and a half days within sight of Porto Santo, an island just east of Madeira, and then dropped, leaving us becalmed. We decided in the total absence of wind to start the engine, and David girded up his loins and tackled the job. The engine, however, proved coy and refused to respond. Then the mate joined in the struggle, and later John also became involved. The three of them seemed to be quite interested in the case and happy in taking off various parts, looking inside and putting them back again. In the circumstances, there was no demand for my services or advice. I sat at the tiller in the glorious sun. I smoked a contemplative pipe. I do not claim to be a mechanic, and if anyone else can be induced to look after the engine, I am always prepared to stand back and let him smear himself in his clothes with oil and grease, bark his knuckles, get electric shocks, and exhaust himself by turning the flywheel, is only when no one else is willing to or available that I appear in the character of engine driver. On this occasion, the work continued all day, and just before dark, the engine recovered sufficiently from its state of lethargy to give one or two coughs, but only to subside once more into quiescence. Then it suddenly started. No one seemed to have done anything different from what they had already been done a dozen times. But motors are like that. They are mysterious things. At 2 a.m. on the 25th of September, we brought up on Fuchal Roadstead. We were in the midst of several lighters, tugs, and other craft. As seen from the sea, the island is very beautiful. It has mountains, and the lower slopes are covered with verdure. Houses which are painted a dazzling white with red roofs appear at the town which lies at the foot of the hills. The streets are paved with round cobblestones. Sledges were drawn by oxen and are used instead of wheel carts. As in Prospero's Island, the air breathes upon us here most sweetly and the climate is delightful. It was a pleasant spot. One of the sights that all visitors are expected to do is to take the Funikohar train to the top of the hill at the back of the town. Next, visitors have lunch at the Palace Hotel, and finally they should toboggan down the cobble street in the, a sledge guided by two men. This we duty-bound obliged in. One of our charioteers was 67 years old, and the other was 59, yet they ran down the hill like two-year-olds. When we were halfway down, we stopped at a small cafe and had a bottle of wine, for which we paid an exorbitant price. An English firm in Funchal repaired the topsail for us and made a new grating to replace the one washed overboard in the squall. It charges a staggering price for doing this. When we remonstrated with the manager of the department concerned, he frankly replied that although Madeira was a health resort, neither he nor his firm were there for health's sake. They were out for money. The place lay a long way out in the Atlantic, and there was no competition. Anyone arriving with defects needed to pay. 
Having expressed himself in in these terms, he took 2% off the bill, and we had to be content with that. The same firm was building a harbor launch driven by a Kelvin motor to hold 100 persons. They aimed at finishing it in 100 days without working overtime. It looked as if they would succeed, too. On the 28th of September, we took in a supply of mangoes, prickly pears, grapes, pineapples, granadas, and passion fruit, and we weighed anchor at 6 p.m. for Las Palmas in Gran Canaria. We shaped our course to pass 20 miles to the east of the unlighted and uninhabited salvage islands. Treasure is said to be buried there. At least one party, not ours, had looked for it unsuccessfully. From all accounts, there are lots of treasure hidden in various parts of the world. It seems to have been the way the Middle Ages pirates and privateers banked their loot. They hid it well, and probably more money has been spent in trying to find it than the stuff is worth. The passage was made under ideal conditions, a warm sun, gentle breeze, and smooth sea, which was almost purple in color. Flying fish appeared. They were the first we had seen. They do not actually fly, as a matter of fact. That is, they do not propel themselves with their wings. They plane along, getting up speed in some strange way under the surface. They come out of the water as if shot from a catapult and cover perhaps 100 to 200 yards at a flight. The mate, with hazy recollections of happenings when he was in command of a motor launch during the war, promised us a good supply of flying fish every morning if we put a light on deck at night. We should hear the fish flopping about the deck all night, he assured us. The light was put out, but the results were very meager, almost nil in fact. A few were knocked down from time to time by trying to fly through the mast or other obstructions, but the light did not seem to play any part in the matter. Quite as many came on board after it it had been discontinued. In the afternoon of the 1st of October, the high land of Gran Canaria was sighted ahead. Only the tops of hills were visible, the lower parts being hidden in cloud. At dark, the light on Isleta shone up just before 11 p.m. We had anchored in La Luz Harbor. It was full of ships, and we toured all around it before we could find a clear spot for anchoring. Editor's note, take that as a typo. Because of the author's premature death, I suspect typos errors and ill-considered phrases are more frequent in this text than they would have been had he lived to see it published. Nevertheless, he repeats the error elsewhere. I am replacing La Laz with La Luz. The latter is translated literally as the light. As an American studying in the United Kingdom for several years, I was struck that many residents lacked rudimentary level of Spanish that I expect from most Americans. If only my French was as good as the typical resident of England. End of note. When we lowered the mainsail, the binnacle narrowly escaped being smashed and my head cracked. There was a little mental confusion on the part of the man at the throat halyards that he had hold of the peak halyards. When word came, hold on the peak, lower away the throat, he held on the throat, believing it to be the peak halyards. He urged his opposite number to lower away, and the result was the gaff was lowered right down to the deck. The gaff swept about, creating general confusion while the throat was still halfway up the mast. No harm was actually done unless the feelings of the culprit were hurt by my remark that persons of average intelligence working as crew of a sailing ship should know after three weeks on board which were the peak and which were the throw to halyards. If they didn't, the inference was clear. 
On the next morning, we shifted the ship nearer to the landing place and lay with anchor out ahead, and we had a stern line on the small schooner. Bumboatmen bothered us all morning until the ship chandler came off and told us to hoist a flag in the international code. I had forgotten. That signified that we had chosen our attendant boat, and all others were to keep off. He said that if any other bumboatmen had come on board while that flag was flying, he could legally throw them overboard or even shoot them. It seemed a drastic law. Anyways, the appearance of the flag at the cross trees resulted in all the boats moving off. The harbor of La Luz is about two miles from the town of Las Palmas and is a very busy spot. Steamers arrive and leave daily, and there's constant movement in and out of the small local schooners. Some of these brought in cargoes of salted fish, apparently in the last stages of decomposition, judging from the smell. Las Palmas is built along the beach in the Valley of the Palm and other trees, and it is an ordinary Spanish town with airy open-fronted shops. The guidebooks, however, give a full description, and I will merely say that we remained in Gran Canaria until the 19th of October, waiting for the rainy hurricane season in the West Indies to finish. The chief items of interest which occurred during our stay were the fact that the mate made tea on one occasion with boiling paraffin instead of boiling water. Why there was not an explosion is a mystery. We also had the appearance on board of a rat, an expectant mother, judging from the zeal with which it made nests with scraps of paper. The prospect of being obliged to entertain a mother rat and a number of young ones was very alarming. Traps and poison were tried in vain. After one night where the mate who was sleeping on deck leaped up and affirmed the rat had nibbled his ear, we felt the crisis had arisen. Then John came to the rescue. He had plenty of opportunities for studying the habits of rats in the trenches and knew all about them. Rats, he said, do not like the smell of tar. Is there any tar on board? There was not. But there was a disinfectant which smelled tarry. That was poured freely into the bilges and behind the matched boards. On that night, the rat abandoned ship. Whether it did a tightrope walk along the stern warp to the schooner or gallantly leaped into the water, it is not known. Anyways, it went, and that was the main thing. Before leaving, I got Greenwich time from HMS Thistle, which came in. I had previously tried to get it from the Spanish guard ship Infanta Isabel, but was told on board that their gear was very poor and they could only hear Santa Cruz Tenerife, which is about 30 miles as the crow flies, only when the conditions were good. It must be a curious installation for a warship. The navigating officer on the Thistle also gave me a tracing of Weir's azimuth diagram, which must have taken hours to make. It saved a great deal of calculation. Big ships must look after little ships, he said, when he handed over the tracing. On the 19th of October, we filled up with bananas, oranges, and fresh provisions and prepared to start. Just as we were heaving in the cable, David came on deck and said, I do not feel well. There are pains all over my body. In that case, we had better not start, I replied. We had better wait and let you see the doctor. Oh no, I shall be all right once we are at sea. At noon, therefore, we left the harbor for Barbados, about 2,700 miles to the westward, but did not get very far that time as David got worse instead of better. In the evening, he was very uncomfortable and feverish. I consulted the 
ship's medical guide without being able to identify his disease and took his temperature, which was 101. By that time, he had run so far before a fresh northeast breeze that it was hopeless to think of beating back, and I decided to make Santa Cruz Tenerife, which was more or less on our way. The breeze held until we were under the lee of the land, and we lay becalmed all night. At dawn, the engine was started to get us clear. A mile or so further out, we found a fresh northeast breeze, which took us into Santa Cruz Harbor. Just after dark, Sanchez, the boatman, was alongside even before we had anchored, with a sheaf of American chits of recommendation. He thought we were an American ship. On the next morning, I called on the British consul to pay me respects and to get a doctor for David. In due course, one came on board and decided David had a chill, but he was recovering. I would like to come with you and see your little ship fighting the waves, the doctor remarked. I wonder, as a friend of mine used to say when not quite convinced by a statement made, on the doctor's departure, Sanchez came to say that the harbor master wanted to see me. Sanchez was our boatman. For a few pesetas a day, he agreed to attend on us with his boat at any hour on the day or night and do the catering and odd jobs for us. It was cheap. Why, the sight of his jolly round face alone was worth the money. The presence of his tall, solemn brother during our walks about the town lent dignity to the party, which otherwise would have been wanting. Sanchez took me to the Captain del Puerto, a short, stout, pompous, rather overdressed little man who was engaged at the moment in choosing socks from a commercial traveler. He kept me waiting while he made a selection of gaudy-colored hose and was on the whole rather insolent in his manner. He wanted me to enter and later clear my ship and supply the manifest of the cargo. I explained through Sanchez that I had no cargo and no manifest. I explained that vessels which were classified as yachts and privileged to fly the Blue Ensign were usually regarded as warships and not as merchantmen, and were not required to enter and clear. El Captain, however, would have none of this. All those islands were strongly pro-German during the war, and he did not propose to make any concession to an English yacht. I therefore made my way to that unfailing harbor of refuge when in foreign ports, the British consul, who set me on to Mr. Hamilton. These gentlemen very kindly did all the necessary work for a purely nominal sum, and he also arranged that Mr. Dine, one of their managers, should take us to the English club and make us members. Meanwhile, David was very insistent that we should start at once. He did not like to feel that he was holding us back. Three of you can handle the ship, he said, and I shall soon recover at sea. Although I understood how he felt, I could not agree. He might have a relapse with complications and get worse instead of better, or he might not recover as quickly as he anticipated. In any case, I should have to convey a convalescent right across the Atlantic. No, I replied, there is no hurry, and we will remain until you are fit and able to stand your watch. I cannot take the responsibility of starting with a sick man. In three days, we visited Laguna and were driven out by Mr. Brown to his beautiful house. It was built in the Moorish style, where the chief living room was the veranda. David had recovered sufficiently to warrant our making a start on the 24th of October. We weighed at 7 a.m. Sanchez came to assist and pulled up the stern anchor, which the authorities had insisted on our putting down. He then brought up the second anchor out ahead. 
Once we were outside the harbor, a fine, hearty northeast wind sent us spinning along down the coast. At sunset, the peak of Tenerife was 60 miles distant, showing clearly above the clouds. At last, we were fairly off on the 2,600-mile passage across the Atlantic. It seemed a long way looking at the blank spade on the chart. Moreover, we could not profitably go direct. It was, the, it was first necessary to run southwest to ensure that we found a true northeast trade wind, and this made the distance even greater. Soon there was further reasons for keeping south towards Cape Verde Islands. John began to complain of pains in his head and limbs. The following day he was worse and obliged to keep to his bunk. We took his temperature, which was slightly up, and his brother went right through the ship's medical guide to try and find a disease corresponding to the symptoms. The only one which seemed to agree was beriberi or sleeping sickness. It could hardly be that. On the other hand, our rice was not of the yellow, unpolished variety. It was white and polished, the sort that causes beriberi. Editor's note, beriberi is caused by deficiency of thymine or vitamin B1, which occurs when a diet is lacking in varieties such as subsistence entirely on white rice. That seems unlikely for this crew. End of note. At this stage of the proceedings, while the mate and I were learning quite a lot about diseases from the guide, we were beginning to think that ourselves were suffering from several other ailments, which we had not hitherto suspected. Then David intervened and decided that John had a chill. He took up the case with energy. He made up the bunk, got John into dry pajamas, and started nursing and feeding him slops in a way which would have been a credit to a trained nurse. As a result, two days later, John was once more doing his bit. Then there was no longer any necessity to think of the Cape Verde Islands and Portuguese doctors. After that, there was no more sickness, and we finished the passage in excellent health, in spite of the fact that all the meat came out of tins. The only alternative to tins is carrying a harness cask with the meat in brine. But meat so preserved always seemed to me to be unpleasant in smell and flavor. I much preferred it tin, as it is then far easier to stow and stewed up with rice, potatoes, and macaroni, onions, and tomatoes is quite tasty. That is how we prepared it or else made a dry hash, curry, or risolas. A lot can be done with tin meat, but some people consider it dangerous stuff liable to produce tomain poisoning. Editor's note, tomain is a poisonous bacteria formed off of rotting food. End of note. Altogether, we did very well as regards to feeding. John did most of the cooking, but as we kept up the watches day and night, others occasionally had to lend a hand. Time passed very quickly, and what with two hours at the tiller for every six hours cooking, eating, washing up, sleeping, and handling the sails, there seemed very little leisure. As I had the more interesting job of working the ship's position daily, I did not always assist in washing up. Taking sights and working out the results is rather a fascinating affair and appeals to one more than washing up greasy dishes. Nevertheless, I did my share of the latter when the occasion demanded. Slowly we crawled across the blank chart, leaving it a trail of little circles, enclosing a dot with a date 
date against it, each of which represented the ship's position at noon that day. The largest scale on the chart to be had was still on a very small scale, about 100 miles to the inch, so that the advance from one day to the next seemed to be very slight, though we were actually getting along well and making good an average of 130 miles every 24 hours. Although we only made good 130 miles daily, we sailed about 150 miles, owing to the fact that we could seldom steer the direct course. We did not approach our port or make good the full distance sail. The wind was always fair, almost too fair, as it was dead astern, which is not the best point of sailing for fore and aft rig ship because one sail blankets or takes the wind from another. To get over this, to some extent, a spinnaker can be carried on the opposite side of the mainsail, but nothing will make the headsails draw, and the mizzen is almost useless. We carried the spinnaker day and night most of the time, as the wind shifted frequently and blew anywhere from northeast to southeast hardly a day passed when we were not obliged to change the sails over from one side to the other. This was a process which usually took the best part of an hour. One night the helmsman jibed involuntarily all standing. Luckily no great harm was done, but it took a long time in the dark to straighten things up and get this ship back on her course. The weather was most delightful, and all day the white fleecy trade wind clouds would sail quietly above the horizon. While the nights were lovely, the air soft and warm, and the stars very brilliant. From time to time there was a good deal of rain blowing about in the form of small local squalls. Some as many as six of these would be in sight at one time in different parts of the horizon. On one night, we had a real downpour for five hours, which was so heavy that it gave me a very good idea of what it must be like to sit under a gutter spout, which is going full bore. The mate had been steering, and he had noticed a heavy bank of cloud to windward. There had been a lot of cloud all afternoon and evening, with the lightning showing all around the horizon. At midnight, this extra black mass appeared, and he called me. It is one of the privileges of the skipper to have a better chance than anyone on board of contemplating the wonders of nature by being called whenever anything unusual is happening or seems to be about to happen. On this occasion, on being aroused from slumber, I gazed on this black mass with a feeling of strong disfavor and promptly decided to get the spinnaker off as a start. It was lowered with some difficulty as a fresh puff of wind came with the rain, and then the downpour started. It knocked down the wind and sea. They had no chance against it, as it appeared to fall not in drops, but in rods of water. For five hours this went on, and then it gradually ceased. That left me free to go down below and take off my soaked clothes. On the 12th of November, we were getting near Barbados, but the sky was was quite overcast, as it had been seen the day before. Thus I could not get a sight of the sun or stars. This was rather awkward, especially at the rates of two of the chronometers had altered, and they were then nearly 55 seconds adrift, compared with what they should have been on the old rates. Things often happen that way, and it adds a seasoning to life. Further, the difficulty of steering a steady course with wind frequently working to one side or the other made it advisable to check the position by sights as often as possible. Moreover, the peculiarities of some of the helmsmen were not without effect on the results. One of them, finding the sun rather hot, altered course without mentioning the matter. On one occasion, at least, in order 
order to get some shade from the mainsail, and another one appeared one afternoon to take his turn at the tiller with a book under his arm. I gazed at him with concern. Could it be that he proposed to violate all the best traditions of seamen by reading and steering at the same time? That seemed to be his intention as he seated himself with an air of pleasant anticipation. The book under your arm. Is it to serve as a footrest? I asked. Oh, no, no, it's rather interesting and i thought of glancing at it as i steered thereupon i put a heavy skipper air and said are you aware that the safety of the ship to say nothing of the crew depends on the helmsman and the touch of the hand pressure wrongly applied to the tiller can cause a jibe or cripple her if you're really interested in a book i will steer for you while you read but of course he would not hear it and put the book away and the traditions of the sea remained unbroken editor's note with the advent of wind vane and electric autopilot self-steering you'd be hard-pressed to find a helmsman or helmswoman not reading for most of his or her watch on an offshore yacht times have changed in the 95 years since the book's first publication in the afternoon the wind fell right away and then light airs came from all around the compass with heavy rain thunder and lightning at dark the wind came westerly and we kept close hauled until 10 p.m when we came round to the southeast there was no light on the north end of the island i did not care to risk standing on in the dark at 4 a.m we came around once more as it grew light i got the binoculars and started examining the horizon systematically john was at the tiller and he watched me with interest for a few seconds and then asked are you looking for anything yes i'm looking for barbados which should be around here somewhere it's only 18 miles long and what with no sights for two days the chronometers a bit out the current and one thing and another i should be surprised if we missed it altogether oh there's land on the starboard bow perhaps that is barbados wily fellow he had eyes like a hawk and had seen it at dawn but i knew i should not see it until i had worked round the horizon with my binoculars in the meantime he wanted to hear once more about the altered rates of the chronometers which i had been deploring loudly for several days as well as declaiming about the extreme inconvenience of not being able to get sights towards the close of a long passage All right, that's all for chapter one. Uh, we'll bring you chapter two at some point. I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water.